You're listening to the Good Recruitment Campaign podcast with Kevin Green. And to find out more about the Good Recruitment Campaign, visit www.rec.uk.com forward slash good recruitment. Welcome to the latest Good Recruitment podcast. With me today is Andrew Porter, who is the Interim Talent and Acquisition Director at RS Components. And prior to that, did a similar role at Diageo, a great supporter of the uh, Good Recruitment campaign, which we'll get to later. So, welcome. Good morning. Nice to be here. Thanks, Kevin. Tell us a bit about the organisation you're currently working in. So, RS Components, um, really interesting business, actually. Uh, Business has been around 80 years. It's a FTSE 250 business. Um, But I think the most interesting thing about it is that it's a British business. It's global. Um, and it has massive aspirations um, to grow for the future. And that's part of the reason why I've, I'm at RS Components okay. in an interim role at the moment. Now, most people won't know them, so what do they actually do? Okay, so really a big distributor of electronics and electronic component parts. So they sit in the middle of the actual manufacturer and the end client. Okay. But some of the end clients are really massive global organisations. So that would be car manufacturers. Car manufacturers, so we... Um, we work a lot with Jag Land Rover, yeah. Siemens is another you know, really big client. So really fulfilling that, that middle ground between the, the manufacturer and the end user. And is there a lot of that around logistics and just in time? That's the sort of fundamental... Yeah, I mean, it, when you start to explore that with RS Components, you know, um, dangerous to make compar- comparisons with something like an Amazon. But in the space, if you kind of think about that model, it's... What do you want? Have we got it? How quickly can we get it to you? So yes, there's a massive emphasis on uh, stock and being able to supply those parts to end clients. So how many people do they employ? So globally, RS is 6,000 people, which roughly breaks down to about 4,500 people within the EMEA geography, about 500 in uh, the Asia-Pacific geography, and about 1,000 in uh, the US. Okay, and in terms of you know talent attraction, how many people do they hire each year? What, you know, I mean, I'm sure if it's growing, there's demand, but there's most, always churn as yeah, well. Yeah, most definitely. Um, so I can only talk to the European and APAC right. uh, part of the business, but across those two, roughly about seven to eight hundred hires a year. So in the scale of some businesses, that's not a huge amount. No. I guess the the challenge, though, is that what we hire is very diverse. So everything from folks who work in the warehouse being able to fulfil those orders all the way through um, to digital talent, um, really senior uh, supplier managers, product managers. So, um, yeah, a huge wide range of different people. Okay, well, we'll get back to, to what you're currently doing there and some of the challenges in a moment. But tell us a little bit about yourself. So, I mean, you've had quite an eclectic career, always, I think, around talent attraction, acquisition, but you've worked in lots of different organisations, sometimes on the RPO, MSP side as well as in-house. 
So tell us a bit about how did you get into this weird sort of environment? <laughs> the eclectic bit. Um, yeah, I mean, how did I get into it? I, asked, I often one ask that same question <laughs> myself. So I think, well, it goes back to the late nineties actually, when I I worked for an insurance business, and this is going to say, how did yeah, what's the logic here? But I actually went into um, set up the back end of the recruitment function for what was then the infancy of regulated recruitment. Um, so making sure people were coming in, they were fit, they were proper, they were appropriate. Um, and that then just grew into taking on the front end of the recruitment process as well for a large um, Canadian-based, actually, uh, insurer. And probably from then, I've just kind of rolled through into different roles within sort of TA, resourcing, recruitment, whatever name we like to give it in this this world that we operate in. And that's really how my career's grown. But I, I guess for me, the eclectic part that you talked about comes probably more from the fact that everything that I have gone into has, well, every, yeah, pretty much everything that has been broken to some degree. Okay. Um, so it's about going in and making sense of it, working with stakeholders and coming out with a solution. So one of the questions, I suppose, is, is, is this a profession? Is this, you know, is there a set of skills and capabilities that you would describe as something that's quite unique and different? Or is it really good business practice applied to the recruitment process? Because again, we have this debate, you know, is yeah. it a profession? Are we part of HR? Are we not part of HR? Well, I think that depends on any day of the week and who you're talking to, to some extent. Um, I think if you kind of take the industry and people who perhaps operate more within the in-house space, I think there are organisations that have integrated brilliantly well where TA, recruitment, whatever name you want to give it, to, give it, has integrated with the HR community. And actually that is, for me, probably the examples of where it works best, where there is no territory sort of divisions yeah, yeah, yeah. where you work seamlessly as a as a single function for the end benefit of the organization i definitely get where um some of that sort of what are you comes from um and i, I see that all the time um particularly as an interim going into organizations who are trying to look to establish a ta function yeah, yeah. or ha are trying to make it better often the root cause of why it's not working is the fact that it's sitting out on its own. The organised transaction yeah, service, exactly. and cost per hire. And completely. And I think, you know, we don't do ourselves any favours when we kind of use some of those more traditional metrics which drive a transaction-led um, approach or a viewpoint from the business. I think great TA really looks to add value to the business and become a, yeah. a business driver. Okay, so so let's just touch on that. Um, so let's think about, you know, making it work in organisations. I mean, that sounds to me like it's a leadership challenge where people, you know, the leaders within an organisation understand the talent requirements that they're trying to build, the culture they're trying to create, and they're looking for great people to join mm -hmm. an organisation. And perhaps when it doesn't work is we're just looking for some technical skills and someone has done that and we can plug them and play them yeah. and whatever. So tell us about when you're looking for interim gigs or the next permanent role if it is, <laughs> you know, what are you looking for? So what are you looking for in the leadership bit? So, I mean, I, I think where, in any organisation, where you, you want to go in and be able to make a difference and therefore, you know, if you're going into it, if I'm going into it as an, as an interim, 
you know, having really strong support from business leadership about the articulation around what they want from talent acquisition has to benefit. Um, I think, you know, if you can combine that with things like great brand, um, you know, great approach around candidate satisfaction, etc. And you've got the business wanting and understanding, all of that has to join up, then I think that makes it a very attractive um, proposition. But then conversely, you know, to my point about, you know, we need to show and add value... Um, and without kind of naming names in organisations that I've been in, actually some of the best and most enjoyable interim gigs have been where no one knows anything and actually you're able to go in and apply that professionalism and knowledge. So tell us about, you know, so you're going into perhaps uh, an organisation that hasn't got this cracked and it might be a bit broken, it's certainly not delivering as they would like it Mm. to. So tell us, you know, what does great look like? So if you went in and said, actually, these go, this, this is really sorted. This is a world-class talent acquisition. What were the, what are the behaviours? What do, what would I see if I went in? So describe yeah. to me what you think great TA looks like. So if we think about great TA from a different, a couple of different lenses. So from a candidate perspective, you know, that would be where I would start. You know, at the end of the day, that's where you're going to go out to find the talent that you want for the business. Then from a candidate. An organisation that has a really clearly articulated value proposition, not necessarily the employee value proposition, but their what they say they do is clear, their website is clear, they, the way that you can um, find roles is clear, their process perhaps has been talked about up front so that you know it's only going to no be surprises. two of yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe you even give people... Um, information up front to help them through the process so I think from a candidate perspective just looking at it from the outside those are a number of the things so that that would be candidates can look at the website talk to people it's clear it's transparent they know what they're they're potentially joining and secondly there's a great process so you're handling people incredibly well through that process if they decide yeah and allowing candidates to find out and feel really informed about a what they're applying for and who they're going to be working for and I think sometimes and with no malicious intent organizations don't necessarily offer that up okay in the way that candidates are looking for okay so the candidate was one lens you said there was a couple what's the other yeah so I mean you know so you asked me about what great TA looks like the other two lenses I would look at would be from a hiring manager perspective and then obviously from the recruitment function so we think about the hiring manager perspective you know what I always try and talk to teams and, and hiring managers about and stakeholders about is that this is not your day job you know we have professional people delivering recruitment services to you you're an absolutely integral part of that process but we need you to commit to certain things in that process so a great uh, briefing conversation at the start being able to articulate clearly what the skills, capabilities, mindset, values, whatever it is that you're looking for, be able to talk about that. Because that allows the recruiter to be the best that they can be. And also provide some feedback, do what you say, do it quickly, you know, keep the candidate engaged. Commit commit, you know, one of the biggest things I think is actually about committing to dates for the interview up front and you know however many organisations over however many years I've been in I don't think I've actually ever yet seen an organisation where at the engagement conversation it's like so Kevin 
these are the dates that I, I've got available. Can we can we commit and contract to actually provide candidates for those? So that was that was the second lens, the hiring manager lens. And then from a recruiter lens, I think it's you know you want to do you would hope you want to do um, your very best work, and therefore it's about having the right tools, the right knowledge, having people that have the right mindset around adding value to the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly, if you're thinking about either an RPO environment or an in-house environment, I think the big accent for me that I've seen over the last four or five years, and it's driven by you know the view of HR or the people organisations, is you need to be commercial. You need to be able to articulate what the commercial value add is that you are giving. And it's, and it's quite frightening, actually, where you know, you'll ask a, a very good recruiter what they're adding, and they can't talk about it in those commercial terms succinctly. They might be able to articulate it in a very broad brush way, yeah, yeah. but not, by me doing this, I'm adding this to your business. So, if I asked you that question, the added value question, mm. what would be the value add for you? What would be, you know, you're going to be there eight months doing this gig... You know, what's the commercial value that you've driven? So, I mean, I think there's a number of different things. I think by setting up, what, what we're doing is we're doing a, a big piece of transition and transformation work at the moment. Um, so we are moving away from one model, but and because the business has changed as well, we don't yet know what the final end state will be. So quite typically, you know, I might go in where you have... Um, for example, had an RPO for a long time, but the business wants to go to an in-house model. So you help the organisation yeah. transition. This is slightly different because um, in amongst the, dis- the desire to move away from the current RPO delivery model, the business has actually changed and has become more regionally focused rather than more centrally focused. And as a result of that, the two projects have kind of Coincide, okay. so we don't yet have the very clear articulation from a regional perspective about what model they want to pursue. And there is absolutely no reason at RS why you couldn't have one region doing in-house, which actually we do do in the US, um, and why another region couldn't be outsourced. You know, APAC's very small; it's only about 120 hires a year. That doesn't necessarily, and it's across eight different countries. Yeah, that lends itself to an outsourced provider. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I think what we've tried to move away from in terms of just the commercial value is rather than trying to have a one size fits all, you know, everybody's washed across the same uh, solution, what we've, what we've actually done is broken that up into three component parts. So it should allow much more flexibility, agility, focus on the cost for okay. each of those regions. So that hopefully answers you yeah. know, sort of okay. the big picture. So let's go back. One of the things you mentioned, and I want to talk about this uh, because I'm interested in it, and I know that people that are uh, working on the principles of a good recruitment campaign will talk about this all the time when we've got a forum, and that's about brand. Because one of the things, again, you see time after time is, you know, great value propositions, mm-hmm. employee propositions, you know, some really interesting work's been done, but their inability to really execute and deliver it. So I'm, I'm just interested in your take on this, and obviously you worked with a brand, an organisation with great brands like Diageo, which sure. I think would have had a, an interesting way of how do we create yep. um, a, a brand proposition for our people, um, which then is aligned to the consumer brands and all of that stuff. So I know you've been in this space, so just tell us what you think 
great employer brand looks like. And have you got any examples of where you've done something that you think is really brilliant and that you can just share with uh, our listeners? So I think, you know, let's pick up on that point about, you know, Diageo. I think, you know, for me, that was edging towards, you know, kind of world class in terms of um, the way that the brand was being used because I think Diageo is a very purpose-led organisation. Um, so it's very clear in what impact it wants to have, what its brands individually, what impact their purpose yeah, yeah, yeah. has on society. And I think that is such a strong platform to build something like an employer brand um, because what you do then is you use that platform to spring off from but very clearly articulate what the employer brand and therefore the employer value proposition actually is from from that so you know I think being able to um, kind of connect those two things certainly gives you more propulsion for your pound um, in terms of spend and I think you know just Diageo was a hugely different organisation because people knew the brands yeah they do so I mean there's a bit about what happens if you haven't got that great consumer brand we'll come back to that but the other thing is how do we make this more than just sort of motherhood and apple pie because one of the great things about this is if you have a brand proposition you're making a promise to Mm -hmm. potential employees and what you then see is, you know, perhaps we don't really quite deliver it on a day-to-day basis. Line managers don't quite behave in the way that we'd like them to. We talk about development opportunities and actually, yeah. you know, that thing about, you know, under-promising and over-delivering, yep. you know. And so how do you ensure that this is real and authentic rather than just some, you know, fantastic online content, yeah. lovely imagery? I, I mean, I think, you know, you, you ensure it by trying to stitch in that piece that you've just talked around about authenticity, not promising things that you can't deliver on. I am not saying for one moment there aren't businesses and a lot of them out there who get so carried away with the brand and what the brand stands for in their mind that they forget that that has to translate into reality. And in some ways, failing to spot that when you're brand building is kind of almost counterintuitive to what you're setting out to do um, yeah. it's about how aspirational brands so probably yeah. some people go too far don't they, they get they too far in front of the reality yeah. now you want it to drag you a little bit because that gives you the conversation internally with line managers and leaders about yeah. what should the culture look like and stuff it but also attracts the wrong talent you know be very clear that you know if you are super aspirational and you are very you know kind of selling the dream the kind of people and the talent that will be attracted to that will have a more adverse reaction when when you bring them in they go hang on a second because these people are savvy you know if that's what they're buying and you're not delivering it then you will lose them so you're kind of a turnover your attrition your you know your retention whatever the numbers are that you're looking yeah. at are actually going to be impacted by i think some of the lessons that we've seen I've seen work really well is about that level of honesty about we are here today but the reason we're hiring you is because we want to be better and I think if you can be truly authentic in that message through your brand you are actually going to be hiring people who are then committed to helping you be the organisation you want to be rather than the organisation you think you are 
So I think, you know, I think there is some real danger zones of that whole employer brand space. And just touch on the, you know, on how do you go about this if you haven't got a great consumer brand, you know, no one knows, perhaps all its components, you know, it's a great business, it sounds a great business, but you're not going to, you know, you're not going to put an advert out on a job board, but oh, I must have worked for them. They were wonderful. You know, I suppose the, 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 the simplistic answer is about storytelling, you know, and I think it's about delving into any organisation that doesn't have that really visible brand and being able to pull out stories that connect with people. Um, so a really good example, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, when I um, arrived at RS last year, I hadn't got a clue who RS were. And I think probably if you ask most people who work for RS now when they joined, neither would they. So if, if you've got that as a starting platform, pushing out loads of glossy ads that say RS, 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 probably isn't going to change people's view. So there has to be some storytelling and a messaging in behind that that kind of appeals to people to be curious about, let's learn more about what RS do. Um, and actually what, what RS have chosen to do, as a, just as a starting point, is um, they had an internal campaign which was called For the Inspired. Um, and you can talk a little bit about that if you want to, but the, um, the articulation that we're using from an employer brand campaign is built on exactly that okay. same piece. But instead of, in, in, For the Inspired could sound very lofty if you're hiring mm. a, you know, a warehouse worker, which yeah, we yeah. do, but it's being able to then re-articulate that back in terms of, you know, we, ha- we use things like, you know, for the inventors, for the purposeful, you know, it, it, it's finding a for the yeah, yeah. and a word that connects people. And what was that campaign about internally? What was interested in that? It was really, I mean, you know, this is what I find so fascinating about RS. You know, given that it's an engineering focused business, so, you know, most of our customers, whether they're huge, you know, or whether they're small, are engineers. So they're trying to solve the world's problems. Um, and some of the stuff that RS gets involved in, in terms of, you know, there's one story that is shared quite regularly about um, an inventor who wanted to make um, a robotic arm for his young son, who was born without a limb, wanted to solve that problem. RS actually were able to get involved in finding the parts, connecting him with the right people to create a robotic arm. RS have supplied components to places like NASA. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's the, the old story about what's yeah, your job here at NASA? I sweep the floor. You know, we supply the parts. Yeah. Um, so there's, you can be super inspired just by those small stories, I think. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a, a break now. So return for the second half of this podcast where with Andrew, I'm going to be exploring a bit about diversity and inclusion and talking about technology because I know you're all interested in that. So we'll be back in a moment. Jobs transform lives, and that's why the REC is building the best recruitment industry in the world. As the professional recruitment body, we're determined to make businesses more successful by helping them find the talent they need. To discover how you can be involved in the Jobs Transform Lives campaign, visit rec.uk.com. So welcome back to the second part of our Good Recruitment podcast. With me today is Andrew Porter, who's the Interim Talent Acquisition Director at RS Components. One of the things, just before we start talking about diversity and technology that I uh, mentioned uh, prior to the break, 
Tell me a little bit about, you know, you've most probably seen it from both sides, the sort of MSP RPO world. So you've been a customer of it and you've been on the other side delivering that service. Uh, just tell me a bit about what you see as being, you know, the right time, uh, the right proposition in terms of an RPO and where you've seen it work really well. Because I think there'll be yeah. lots of people out there going, well, you know, we're going to grow our in-house function or we're going to go the other way and think about you. Because again, I think, you know, people are always looking for innovation and different ways of doing stuff. Yeah. So I, just tell um, us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think just to answer the question sort of succinctly up front, when doesn't it work? Don't have a mess and give it to someone with the, with the intention of, we always used to say at Accenture, you know, your mess for, for less. Um, that doesn't work. You know, you if you're going to go the RPO route, don't use it to fix a problem. You know, I think you really need to be conscious that you need to solve your own problems and at least get it to a good baseline before kind of inviting a, an okay. RPO in. Now, m many organisations now have evolved to, we'll come and do some pre-work with you and do some consulting to help you do that before we actually take it over and run it. And I think, okay. you know, that would be, the, from, in my opinion, the mark of a good RPO. Okay. And when, when, does it, when does it really make sense to do an RPO? So, I mean, I think, um, and I, I'll use the RS um, uh, situation as a, as a bit of an example. So, um, within our, the APAC region, um, it's relatively limited numbers in terms of hiring, but the geographical split for that is over seven or eight different countries and not that everybody likes to recognize that Europe topical comment um, is a, an amalgam of lots of different countries likewise in APAC you have to appreciate that you don't you cannot operate in APAC in English um, because it, it won't work you know yes English is you know a business language certainly it is for, for mm. RS but if you hire three or four people in Thailand a year, you know, that yeah, isn't yeah, yeah. going to be conducive to running an internal um, team yeah. that has Thai language capability. So there are so and many... And understand markets and a cost it, of the action. Exactly, so, exactly. So, you know, the use of, whether we call it RPO or whether we call it a, um, an external support um, function or organisation probably tends to play really well in that's just one example of where yeah. I think an RPO would work really I think the well. point is be very clear about why you're doing it be clear on scope yeah. and be clear on what the outcome is that you you are expecting from the RPO as well so I want to take, change subjects like I mean one of the things that's clear through your career Andrew is that wherever you've been you've been a champion of inclusivity uh, focus on diversity and I know you've done some consulting work in that space as well so tell me a little bit about um, you know where that comes from I'm interested in that mm -hmm. and then again tell me about you know perhaps one or two things that you've done that you're really proud of in that inclusion space because again one of the things I think we see more and more is you know it's quite difficult to run a talent acquisition um, function where diversity and inclusion is really high in the mix and people are trying to mm. look at you know addressing his historical issues uh, but the culture quite isn't there and perhaps the leaders aren't really following through and again we get into that you know over promise and under deliver problem so just tell us a bit about where it comes from for you yeah and then some you know a couple of examples of things that you think of, you, you know you're quite proud of being involved in yeah so I mean from a personal perspective I guess to 
two elements. One is just a fun, fundamental belief that life and everything around life should be fair, equal. Um, you know, and that's not because of any particular sort of experiential thing. It's just something I personally, passionately believe that you know everybody should be treated equally. So I think that's my my foundational uh, uh, personal reason. I guess the second part is you know as an LGBT community member, you know I've seen um, and and actually felt the impact of not being able to be. Um, out in a work environment or okay. in a social environment. Obviously, um, don't, perhaps don't name the organisation, but just mm. talk about a little bit. Just give us a bit of insight about what that felt like, you know. Yeah, because that must be really, really difficult when you can't be your true self. And yeah, and I think, you know, it, it, it's, it's not about any particular organisation. I don't think organisations actually go out of their way to be, um, uh, to create that feeling. But it, you know, I think what people have to be aware of is that, as particularly the LGBT agenda has settled in the UK, you know, it's become much more, you know, it's it's perfectly okay to be, you know, yeah. civil partnered, married. You know, the, the world has moved on substantially over the last five to ten years. Yeah. So where you where you come into an organisation from that external context, where you can be yourself, you can yeah. live as everyone else does, and an organisation doesn't have to be deliberately no. um, difficult. It's unconscious, it. isn't it? I mean, it, I mean, is, yeah. it is. And it, but it's about um, you know the organisation has to be really clear about you know we are inclusive and it has to demonstrate that and talk about it up front. And I think if it doesn't, so this is answers the question, then you you always got that little bit of is it okay? What are people going to to think? And therefore. You know, there's a, there's a statistic somewhere out there about the number of students who are fully out in um, their personal lives and have been out at university, etc. And then the switch, they almost feel like they've gone back in the closet when they arrive in their first work environment because the environment isn't one where they kind of know whether it is or so isn't. It's, so it's really, I suppose, the learning point is organisations just need to be explicit completely and then the more transparent they are and yeah. this is okay you know everyone can be themselves you know then people can feel comfortable to to make their own decisions totally. about you know yeah what they talk about and how open they are yeah and I think in fact that funnily enough connects with you asked the question about you know what am I proudest about yeah and I think when I was at Diageo we reignited the LGBT network there and what was so interesting was the majority of people who came along to the initial meetings about being part of that were the students who'd been in the organisation for one, two, three years who were telling us that story, which is, we don't feel that it's a, a bad place for us to be, we just don't know whether we can be our true 100% authentic yeah. selves. And actually that really unleashed the feeling of um, we need to just do something about that. And I think that was the, the change over the six months after that was enormous. So, and then, and then the challenge is, I think, so trying to create that culture, that inclusive feel where people can be themselves. For me, that's always about, it is about the culture of the organisation and it's a leadership issue. Mm. So tell us about, I mean, I know we've had this conversation before about top down, bottom up. So tell us about, I mean, I think some of the activities you just talked about is bottom up, how do you get people feeling different, how do you engage people, how do you 
you know, get them to be themselves and groups, role modeling, mentoring, all of that mm. stuff is part of that. But tell us a bit about the, the interface with leaders in organizations. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, the way you've described it is the way that I tend to describe it, which is, you know, you have this two directions of flow, the bottom up stuff, which is all the practical things. And, and I would absolutely advocate any organization to be doing that. That's how you create the visibility that we were just talking about. That's how we create, you create it's okay to be you here. But I do see in a lot of organizations um, the real challenge, and this is just talking to people, other TA leaders, it's talking to diversity and inclusion leaders. What happens is organizations seem to focus so much on the bottom up, but don't actually talk about the, the, the top down element. And I think it's great having CEOs who are you know, 100% behind the, the message, but it has to be more than the CEO being on board with the message. It has to be literally, you know, walking the walk. Um, and I think there's also, that's blended with as well, and maybe this is the intersection with, from a, a TA or recruitment perspective, you know, you there's this phrase of, you know, you cannot be what you can't see. So, you know, you've got yeah. to promote senior people who are going to roll model you know whether it's LGBT whether it's um, leaders of yeah. colour whether it's you know uh, having a gender balance on um, on your board so it doesn't you know you it is very important for an organisation to be able to visibly represent and clearly demonstrate their commitment at that level as well as the you know the bottom up and I think it is. It is systemic within organisations that most probably need to recognise how they change. And for leaders, it's about making decisions, isn't it? It is. It is about who you appoint, who you promote, who you hire, all of those sorts of decisions that are, you know, they're leadership decisions. And you just want them to do that in a way with a view about inclusivity and how, how the organisation operates. And, the you know, not just the symbolic thing it does, but actually this is about getting the right person for the job that happens to be, you know, of colour or a female or, or gay, you know, we're exactly. going to get the right person for the job and if we can get some people that are brilliant and actually role model and are very open about yeah. that, then... And I, I think that's really change. important, actually, in that space. I think, you know, we're just with a, a hiring lens, whether it's internal or external, um, I think it's about saying to people, we are not hiring you because we're hiring you because you're the best talent but also the the additional benefit, if you like, is yeah, yeah. that you know we can demonstrate in reality that you're the best talent, and you're in a member of the LGBT community, or you know you're a, a, a BAME leader. Um, you know it has to be the blend of both, of with the focus on the right person for yeah. that role. And I think also it means for leaders you got to work a bit harder. I agree. You know, it, that is the fundamental thing, and you, you do get into this sometimes, and it's like, yeah, 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 so you want a, I don't know, marketing director or a new FD. Well, there will be people that are brilliant at the job, that are hugely talented, and come from underrepresented groups. To do that, it means you might spend a bit longer on the, the search. You're going to have to dig deeper to find people. So, yeah. you know, and I, and I think that's what it's about. It's about doing the right thing in reality rather than just talking about it and hoping it happens by osmosis and yeah. actually if you've got all these groups and we're very open well brilliant but actually when you get to it are you really making hiring decisions where you're bringing people in that feel underrepresented? I, I also think you know it, it, connecting with a couple of other things that we've talked about I do think it is about 
how you position that authenticity and that inclusivity and that focus in your employer brand, for example. You know, having, and I've seen this happen before, having pictures of all white, stereotypical, you know, employees on a website when you're trying to promote, you know, an inclusive conversation is not the way to go. Um, the other the other thing that um, we've sort of touched on before around, you know, how to attract great people um, is also the partners that you use externally. So, you know, you asked um, mm. uh, or you talked about at the top of the conversation about the various places I've worked, but actually working with agency partners, I think this is where genuinely, I think this is where agencies have a real opportunity i've said to a number of people if you can if you can crack the being the agency that truly represents diversity and inclusive candidates or diverse and inclusive candidates um, and is able to present those as credible brilliant candidates to an organization organizations will bite your hands off for those candidates. well there's two or three that are doing it doing it very very and, well and, and and i think they're at the real forefront of where agencies actually can make a they can pivot what they already do but play really strongly and authentically into that diversity i, do too. I, I think it's a huge opportunity yeah because again you know what agencies are doing is they're scouring markets aren't they they're looking for talent and building communities is, is a great thing. And if you get renowned for that, yeah. one, you attract more talent. And secondly, you're going to be seeing, you're going to differentiate yourselves in terms of how you're perceived by the people that are making decisions about whether we use an agency. It was in, it's interesting because I was talking to an um, executive search firm, or a number of them actually, recently. And we were talking about hiring into um, technology. And it really interestingly, because... Um, the the diversity issue has become such a key thing for organisations. There is now a premium which um, applies to great female talent in technology. And people know that. So you actually are now finding that you're actually having to pay a premium to get those people because they know they're in demand. They're in the demand. You're talented and you know I'm underrepresented. I've got something that differentiates me. I'm, you know, but it's an interesting yeah, sort yeah, of com- yeah. commercial dynamic of organisations waking up to the fact that actually, you know, great technology female leaders are massively underrepresented in our businesses. Absolutely. Right. Final subject before we talk about the good recruitment campaign is I want to just touch on technology because it's a an issue. I don't think I've been to a recruitment conference or spoken to people when this hasn't come up as an issue. Some of it is perhaps because you know we've just been using CRMs and ATSs that have never quite done the job, and we've always wanted to do more. Mm. I think there's an abundance of really nice new technology out there. But when I talk to TA leaders and people in HR, there's this sort of quite often, well, I'm trying to fix this thing and I'm not even really thinking about what's out there because I don't you know, do I, do I plug and play? Do I reinvent this thing? So just tell us your take on technology within the recruitment space and, you know, some of the, the experiences that you've had where you might be able to just give us some, you know, fresh perspective, a different view on... Yeah, what we should I mean, be doing. I, 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 yeah, I, I like you. Every time that you have a conversation with a, a fellow TA leader, technology always comes up, and I think it comes up in a number of, I suppose, specific ways. You know, I would put there's a category of 
what's cool, new, and interesting. So you know, you can bucket that with things like digital interviewing, yeah, yeah. AI, robotics. You know, all of those kinds I mean, of. Let's just touch on that. I, yeah. mean, I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in. I think chatbots have got a huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about, you know, volume recruitment, yep. you know, the personal experience, you know, you might want to talk to someone or you, you know, you look at a job ad, I'm not quite sure where is this, they haven't given me some data, lots of simple questions at the beginning of yep. a process that I think can be done incredibly well by yep. chatbot. So for me, I can't, you know, and I go, I go around scouring to find people that are doing it, I found, yeah. I found two, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. where yeah. everyone's talking about it, but very few people are doing it. I think that's about bravery of adoption. Um, I think... Most organisations who've got the money to commit to new technology are big organisations and therefore they want to see a return on their investment. I think there's also another dynamic as well which you will find a lot of organisations, just to your point, aren't across their existing technology stack. So it's not necessarily working optimally, so their question mark will always be internally do we add something else to it and how's it going to work and are we going to be able to demonstrate a return on investment i don't think any of that in it should be a preclusion to no we shouldn't do it because i absolutely agree with you that it is the way of the world and actually if you kind of think about another topic we were talking about the candidate experience and also the way that we all doesn't matter i you know i get very kind of cross about the sort of the comment around generational differences because I'm of a certain generation, Kevin, like you are, um, and we're not millennials. Uh, let's just put it like that. Um, and you know, when you talk about millennials interact everything on their phone, so do I. You know, I want a really seamless, easy process if I apply for a job or whatever. So I think it's about making sure that from a candidate experience perspective, that front end of the process is slick, easy, we've talked about brand, we get all the information, so that we feel confident that we can apply for a role and it's not going to be an endless process. So I think there's an absolute, I guess the point is that I think technology at the front end of the process to do the heavy lifting is huge without a shadow. What about the thing about, uh, this is obviously, I'm just picking up some of the things you mentioned, Charlie. I mean, the whole thing about digital interviewing, you know, online, all of that stuff, people using their phones, standard questions, you know, face recognition Mm -hmm. stuff. There's all sorts of stuff going on out there. What's your take on that? Again, I think it's all new. It's all a little bit scary for some people. I, again, I think, look, we see how technology invades everything we do and how it's changing everything. I think we would be idiots to think that technology is not fundamentally going to change the recruitment process, but more importantly, the recruitment industry as well. Now, how, I think is probably still a a, a bit of a question, but if we were sitting here in five years' time having the same conversation I would be very surprised yeah I think I think well, things will start to be deployed and will become pervasive and will just become accepted and I think chatbots are part of that I think a whole host of different things around selection and also the, at the back end you know the whole thing about just making it seamless as you say you know yeah. making it easy you know and I think that so you talked about or I was saying about um, there were two sort of uh, different bits yeah. so we talked about all the cool and interesting tech but there's actually all the sort of what I call the foundational elements, you know, things like your ATS, your CRM system, whether it is or whether it isn't integrated. Um, those are the bits that organisations, I think, still struggle with. I, again, 
to your point earlier, I haven't been into any organisation where somebody says, you know, our ATS is rubbish. You know, I I kind of get where they're coming from, but a lot of that is through a lack of investment. It's a lot a lack of control on the system. You know, um, I, I think there is a lot that we can do with ATSs, and ATSs have put a lot of money into developing their products. Mm. But I do think there are some young guns coming along who will disrupt that space very significantly. Tell me about those. Years. Tell me about the young guns. I'm always interested. Well, in the I think guns. you know there there are there are there are products out there that are a lot more agile. They're much more like the kind of the Amazon experience. I, would, yeah, yeah, I yeah. guess I would liken it to. I think the danger for those organisations, though, is that to get a big organisation to commit to it when they're small, when they're not yet fully developed yeah, yeah. is as a big organization your enterprise risk. level it's massive risk you're deploying it across multiple countries and it's how to bridge that divide because so do they pilot it do they do it in certain areas you know like like you said with the rpo you know you pick a region yeah. it's not huge it really might help us there let's trial it there and then that could definitely be one way of doing it i think it very much depends on your structure of your business it also depends on you know your uh, approach from a technology point of view from your IT um, sort of function um, but certainly with cloud-based solutions it definitely helps to be able to ring fence things and as you say yeah. pilot it without as much risk of you know the entire thing coming crashing down as it may have done five or ten years ago yeah. okay uh, thank you for that I, I think there is some huge opportunities for talent attraction to, to really think about technology and I think that one of the great problems is is we just need to think about having some capability in our organisations that help us with that you know quite often you go and it looks after that and it's like a little bit oh, yes. nebulous <laughs> yes um, so let, before we finish let me just sort of take the opportunity to talk to you about the good recruitment campaign or ask you some questions because you've been a big supporter of it you've been involved right from the beginning I think you're involved in some of our early dinners before we even formalised it and, and, and turned it into a charter and some of our early meetings, you've spoken at Trek, you've been engaged in workshops, you know, you've been a, a big advocate. I suppose the, the first question is why? And then secondly, tell us a bit about what you got out of it. You know? mm, so, so why? It's a bit like, you know, why diversity and inclusion? Because I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's talent acquisition recruitment gets a bad rap. And I think the good recruitment campaign is one way of, we talked about the commercial value of good recruitment. This is a kind of almost like the ethics of good recruitment. And it underpins all those conversations. We've pretty much touched on most of the nine elements of the, the charter this morning um, in terms of things like employer brand, in terms of things like diversity, inclusion, candidate experience. You know, I, those are just the right things that an organisation should be focusing on. I think what did we get out of it and I'm talking specifically about Diageo which is as you said where I was when we got involved just having the clarity around those nine dimensions of the charter I think is so important just having that, that self-check are we doing the best that we can do in one two three etc um, and also you know the other the other huge benefit of I think being involved in a good recruitment campaign is and how much it's grown is just sharing all that best practice and the fact we all go through those sort of teething troubles, those horrible nightmares at three o'clock in the morning about, oh, 
you know, I need to fix this. You know, we've all been there and we all are there. But actually, I think by having a cohort of organisations and leaders who are fixed on doing the right thing, we might not all do it all of the time, no. but by working together, we at least are moving the industry in the, in the right direction. So I think that, that would be one of the biggest things I would call out. Fantastic. Thank you for your support. We've really uh, appreciated it. And I've enjoyed talking to you this morning. So, thank you. It's been good uh, to talk to you as well. You know, I think there's some really good insights there. So thank you for spending the time with us. Uh, thanks. It's been great to spend some time with you.